this is our book, and, um, and I just want to warn you that this morning's message is probably a bit more, if you were to classify it, more on the cerebral side, um, and not as many anecdotes or engaging little stories, but I hope, I hope that you'll track as best as you can. God gave us all a mind to use, um, and many parts of the Bible require our minds to uh, engage and and I believe that there's spiritual fruit and, and um, life-changing realities in the use of, of the mind. And so I know my heart behind this, behind this message, is to help you as it has helped me and for it to liberate you where perhaps there have been areas where you have found yourself enslaved. And so um, with that in mind, let me pray that God would help our minds to understand and our hearts to know by the working of the Holy Spirit. Father. I am grateful that you are good and that you are sovereign and that you have, in your immeasurable love, you have sent your only son, our champion and our hero, who uh, on the cross said, it is finished. And we want to believe that truth, that it is finished. And that you have things in store for us that no mind can fully comprehend or understand, things beyond imagination. And we want to believe that too. So I pray for this gathering here um, as people come from different walks of life. Some perhaps don't even know you. Um, All they're interested in is just help me with my marriage or help me with my addiction. Um, And I just pray that you would open their eyes to the bigger picture of of life, the things unseen and the things of Christ and the things of, of grace. And for those who find themselves just struggling, whether it's with depression or, or uh, marital or children issues, Lord, I pray that you would uh, give them a sense of encouragement this morning through your word and revive their souls and hearts and refresh them by your Holy Spirit. We want to hear from you, and I, and I just pray that you would help us now to engage um, the gift of the mind that you have given to us as we open your word and truth um, and desire to hear a uh, fresh word from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I had a, um, a high school girl approach me last, I should call her a high school woman, she's a young woman, approached me after the, I think it was the first service last week, maybe it was the second, and, um, and she wanted to ask me a series of questions. She had a piece of paper in her hand, and she wanted to ask a series of questions um, related to this, this series of messages on Ephesians. And um, one of the questions of the three was this. She asked, is there a place for spiritual discipline? Uh, how do I avoid turning it into a rut, and what is the godly way of implementing it? Now, it's the first and last part of that question that I found um, a penetrating question. Is there a place for spiritual discipline within your series? Um, uh, What is the godly way of implementing it? And the other two questions she asked, because there were three in in totality, um, the other two questions are are great questions as well and deserve to be appendices. In other words, added on to this series because they're that good. Now, I have uh, interacted with a lot of high school students over the years here at Parkway Community Church, a lot of fine uh, young men and women and some smart, um, questioning, uh, bright kids, Um, but I don't know that I've ever had anybody approach me on a Sunday morning and ask me such a penetrating question about the role of discipline in this series. Because we have been emphasizing, as Ephesians emphasizes, um, the importance and the foundation of grace that we as Christians are the Father's workmanship. It's His work. That we are changed by the Holy Spirit. That Christ Jesus is the only one who has and can reconcile us and recreate us. In other words, it's, it's God. And that has been emphasized over and over and over again. 
and no amount of, of effort in trying to do Bible study or praying can convert the facts about God into faith in God. That is a work completely of, of grace. And that has been emphasized over and over again as we've looked at this series. And it can lead one to almost a sense of pacifism, um, a passive Christianity. So if it's true that we are his workmanship, the, the Spirit is the one who does it, and Christ is the one who reconciles, and it's all of grace, then it, perhaps we don't have any part. Maybe I don't need to make any effort whatsoever at praying or, or meditating on the Scripture. And I, I'd be willing to say some have taken it in that direction. But that's, you can see, where her question comes from. So where does discipline come in of making an effort, of, of doing something? Now, I find that to be a vital uh, question for the Christian life. Some may consider it as a superficial, um, intellectual inquiry, musing, but I, I find it the answer to the question, where does discipline fit in and are working it out? How, do, how does that fit in with the idea that, of grace and that we are his workmanship and God's the one who does it? Because the Bible seems to say two different things. On the one hand, we find out that it is all the work of God and there is a type of human effort and work and exertion of, sp- of energy that is and can be classified as wrong. So we have uh, Ephesians 2.8, a verse we've looked at over and over again, or at least alluded to, where it says, you know, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. The last part's key. This is not your own doing. It's emphatic. You're not doing this. So it's not you. Now Paul says it in a negative, in a more um, strong way, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, when he says or asks the question, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? Or as you began as a work of God, and now are you trying to do it in your own effort and sustain your own Christianity by keeping God's commands? And in that sense, that effort at trying to um, continue the Christian life on one's own strength is considered foolish. It's considered contrary to the gospel, contrary to Christianity, and dare I say, sinful. So there's a kind of exertion of working and effort in the Christian life that is foolish and sinful, wrong. On the other hand, you see another stream of thought in the New Testament where Paul himself tells us that we are to run the race so as to obtain the prize. Run the race to win. Now, I have never met a runner who doesn't run to win the prize without exerting a tremendous amount of energy in trying to run and and finish the race. Um, Paul himself says that that was 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Um, Paul himself says that he has to beat his body into submission. He he, he makes an effort at keeping his life submitted to uh, the doctrines of grace. Um, he says at the end of his life, this is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, he says that I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, um, and I have kept the faith. Fighting and running, fighting the fight, running the race and finishing it. All of those are metaphors that, 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 that suggest that there's enormous energy, intentionality, and volition, exercise of will to do these things. And the Apostle Peter says it explicitly. He says, this is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. He says, for this reason, make every effort. 
to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and so forth. He's telling us, he's commanding us to make every effort. So let's put those two things side by side. There is an effort that we can exert ourselves in that is wrong, it's foolish and sinful in the Christian life, running the race in the wrong way. On the other hand, there is an exertion of will and effort that is not only necessary, but it is God-honoring and is commanded. So what's the difference between those two things, those two ways of running, one that's foolish and one that's wise, one that diminishes grace, one that exalts grace? At the center of that is the question, what's the difference? And I find the answer to that vital. If you get it wrong, you could be doing ministry and serving and doing all of this for nothing. You're exerting all of the effort for all the wrong reasons. If you don't understand the answer to the question, what's the difference? And that's basically her question, I think, if I understand it correctly. Where does discipline fit in? Where does effort fit into this thing called grace? How do we participate in something that's a gift? Now, that leads us right into the subject because so far we have been looking at at God's part in this unfolding great mysterious plan of redemption in Christ through his Holy Spirit in making one family out of the the nations and so forth. Um, Now we come to a place where we ask the question, what's our part? Do we play a part in this unfolding plan or are we entirely passive? We just let, let go and let God do it. We don't need to run. We don't need to pray. We don't need to meditate, all those things. Um, what is our part in this plan? And how do we exercise it and how do we do it without being foolish or exercising the wrong kind of effort? That, for me, is, has been a question that I've wrestled with for years. What's the difference? I don't want to run the wrong way. I don't want, and I wouldn't think you would want, to look back at the end of your life and, and realize that you had run in vain, exercising the wrong kind of effort. So let me answer that by backing into it, by looking first at the goal of the plan and how we participate in that goal, and then the means of attaining that goal, that's the means of getting there, and then last, the source of our strength in carrying it out. Those are kind of the three parts. There is, there's the goal, the means, and then the source. And the last part answers the question. Now, when it comes to the goal, um, we have already seen, and I'm, I'm kind of wrapping this in the language of, of Ephesians chapter, um, well, chapter 1, 2, 3, and so forth. The goal, as stated in chapter 1, verse 10, is that this is what God is doing. In human history, the big story, far bigger than what's going to happen with the United States or any other country for that matter, um, is that he is working in Christ to unite all things in him, that's a reference to Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. The great aim is to unite, to bring together. Now that theme of unity or bringing together is so strong all the way through this letter, like Um, fellow heirs, that is, we're part of the same group, that we are members of the same body, same group. Chapter 4 says it over in rapid-fire succession. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's one hope in there also. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. 
It is one, one, one. That's what he's doing. That's his aim. That's his goal. And he goes on to say that the whole goal of ministry itself, life, service, this is chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, is for building up the body of Christ, that's the church, composed of different families, until we attain, and here's what we're to attain, the unity to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, Jesus is at the very center of this union, our faith in him and our knowledge of him, but our goal in ministry is to build up the body to be united in him. And then down in verse 16, he says something similar, so that the church builds itself up in love. Love is the glue that holds and unites this thing together. So if I was to put it like this, the goal of you and I, the church, ministry, everything, what God is doing, is to unite people in a perfect and overflowing love for one another. That's what he's doing. That's his goal, and that is to be our goal. Now, you've probably heard it in church before because it's very cliche to say, you know, we need to have unity in a church. And for me, oftentimes that that feels hollow, it feels cliche, and it feels superficial. A little bit like, you know, Rodney King standing on the street saying, why can't we all just get along? Why? Without providing an answer as to why is this important to us? And why is it important to God for us to be one? And I think the answer to that, or to put a, a center in it, a soul as to why it's important and why, why this is the aim of ministry is to unite God's people in love in Christ, is because it reaches back to the very origins of the nature of God himself. You know, one of, the, one of the definitions of God in the New Testament, it's stated twice in 1 John, is that God is love. And he says it again, God is love. I think that's chapter 4, verse 8 and verse 16. That it defines him. Now, that's not the only defining element of God. He's also righteous, just, and faithful, and loving in all of those. But God is love. And love, by definition, requires more than one. It requires a relational component. If we were to take a man and drop him into a desert, or let's, let me back this up and say, a man chooses to live as a hermit up in the, up in the, up in the mountains, the Sierra Mountains, in a little cabin all by himself. Doesn't have a relationship with God, doesn't like to talk to people. He just wants to be by himself. We would never define that man as a loving man because he must have someone else to show it to. So in order for God to be loved, there must be more than one. And that's part of the beauty and the wonder of the Christian conception of God as triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. God never existed in solitary confinement. But there is an amazing and wonderful oneness to God. He is one, the Bible says over and over again, and yet there is distinctive personality and uniqueness within him so that he himself can love himself uniquely. And the way and the picture that, that, that emerges from the, from the pages of Scripture is that the, the Father offers everything in love to the Son, 
um, he gives him all authority over heaven and earth and gives him a kingdom. And that's what the father does. He gives out of his immeasurable love for his beloved son. And then the son, in love for his father, he, he takes on human flesh, not regarding equality with God, something to be grasped, but he takes on the form of a man, a slave, a servant, even to the point of dying so that in the end, 1 Corinthians 15, he can offer back what he has purchased back to his father as an ultimate act of love. And then we have the person of the spirit who is this creative personality who brings this reciprocating relationship between father son overflowing love for one another to reality one author has called this the trinitarian dance of love and so you see why god himself could be defined as god is love that is the essence of who he is he has always existed internal overflowing love for himself in three persons it's one thing to watch one person dance you know like so you think you can dance <laughs> might be beautiful, but there's nothing like watching two in what seems like perfect love, dancing step in step, both perfect and precise and passionate, and exchanging and reciprocating back and forth. It is far more beautiful than the dance of one, and it's a picture of who God is. Now, why, why do I say that? Well, because the reason God is so passionate about the unity of the body and offering his son for the unity of the body is because God is replicating on earth in his people what has always been true of himself. That we are to reflect this overflowing love to one another as God himself has always reflected an overflowing love for himself. In fact, one could put it differently and say, that the church is supposed to be a, a microcosm of what God has already made us to be in heaven. He has already sealed us as one family, not just you and I in this particular Parkway Community Church, but with other churches in the, in the area and other churches across the globe, forward in time, backward in time. He has already sealed us. We are already one body, already one in spirit, already one by nature of the blood of Christ. That family is a reality. We're simply now trying to manifest what we already are. A loving community united together, forgiving one another, being patient with one another, being kind to one another, dealing with one another's flaws and so forth in a way that shows forth the love of God. That's what we're supposed to be, a little sanctuary of, of heaven on earth. Now, in that context, you understand why unity is so important to the Lord. Because that's what he is three in one, and he's forming in his people a diversity and unity that reflects him. Now, in that context, you understand how important it is, and that's what we're supposed to be working toward. That's our mission, to include lost people as God opens their eyes into this one family, and then to, to, to nurture and to, to uh, see love and forgiveness form so that we begin to reflect the very likeness of God in the body of Christ. Well, that's the, that's, that's the goal, all right? That's, that's the goal put here in, in uh, Ephesian language. That's what we're working towards. Now, the question is, so how do, you, how do you get there? And here we come to what have some, some have called the means of grace. Certain means by which God has ordained, that is, he has decreed, this is how it's going to happen, my way, um, through which my grace will flow. And here I'm just going to take it from Ephesians. Uh, Basically, the means of getting there, of, of accomplishing this, um, are the same means that the, the Apostle Paul used and um, modeled for us in this, this book. And 
since most of you are aware of what these are, I'm not going to comment too much on, on them, just briefly, um, for those who might be new to the church and not really know what these things are. Uh, one means by which God unfolds his plan in our lives is, is prayer. No secret in that. It's just what it is. I mean, we have, in these three chapters, we have two different instances of prayer. Chapter 115 through 23 and 314 through 19. So he stops in the middle of writing to pray. Why? Because he believed that prayer made a difference. Um, we also have it as his, his practice. As you well know, he often talks about praying without ceasing. It's a constant thing that he does because he knows that ultimately everything that's done is a work of the Lord, and so he gets on his knees and prays. So where there is movement in grace and the unfolding of God's plan, there will be prayer. That's what he said. This is how it's going to happen. So Paul made, dare I say, an effort at praying. Communicating. He sees his own, Paul sees his own unique calling in this unfolding plan as one of communication. Um, Here is his own, perhaps a life mission statement, when he says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Notice it's a gift of grace. His call is gracious. Um, To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And he'd go on from there to say, to, To bring to light for everything what is the mystery of the plan hidden for ages in God. Now, it's his was to communicate what he's written down, just the wonders of who God is and the grace that he has extended to us in Christ and who we are now as one family bound together by the blood and dwelt by the Spirit, headed to an inheritance that can't be taken away. This is what he's declaring. Now, by way of qualification, you and I will never duplicate the Apostle Paul's call. He was called to a unique moment in time, a unique calling in time. But... He still gives to us the ministry of communication that we are to be speaking about, this truth that liberates people and tells people about the riches of God and the riches of grace and what he has accomplished for us in Christ. So you have in mul- multiple times here in um, chapter 4 and then in, again in chapter 5, I didn't include that, but when he s- talks to us about speaking the truth in love to one another, or in verse, four, or verse 25 of chapter 4, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. When he says the truth, he's talking about the truths he has just outlined here. The gospel, the goodness of God, the, the love that reaches down and, 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 and captures or reclaims those who are dead in their trespasses and sins and to those who are on the outside looking in. That is, that is, that is the, the truth that we're to be speaking of. And later he talks about singing in the truth, in psalms and hymns, as if the very words of Christ are supposed to fill our singing and our speaking, our conversation, our whispers, our formal communication, our informal communication. Because only as we bathe God's people constantly in the words of who we are, are we able to then rise out of the corrosive um, influences of the world that go against the belief How often do you need to be reminded, honestly, that I, I'm a child of God. I have had my sin taken away. I don't have to work any longer for my Father's acceptance. I don't know how weak you are, but I need to hear that every day. That's why these words are supposed to be filling. And as we continue to speak them in informal, formal ways, to sing them, to whisper them, to talk to each other, to have conversations over coffee with Christ at the center, it actually elevates us like a current, lifts us out, 
and reminds us of who we are and, and the reality in which we really live. That's, that's communication. And this is too ordained by God. This is how it's going to happen. You're going to talk about it. You're going to pray. You're going to ask me. You're going to talk about it. Another one that, that comes to light in this is the ministry of suffering, suffering of love. Um, three different times. He just takes the time to bring out the fact that he's a prisoner, but for a particular reason. So chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason, I, Paul, for this reason, that is what came before was this amazing plan. For this plan, I'm a prisoner for Christ. So he's willing to suffer for the unfolding of this plan. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says something similar. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. And then the one that probably gets the most is, 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 is more, most clear is, is, so I urge you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. That he knows that in his suffering, in whether it's the suffering of time or physical suffering, emotional energy drained out, he knows that it's working to the glory of the people that he loves. And in doing this, Paul aligns himself with a central Christian truth. And that is when people are willing to suffer for one another, grace moves in the same way that grace moved when Jesus suffered the ultimate suffering on our behalf. Like it or not, suffering is a way in which God's grace is imparted to other people. Not just physical suffering in prison, but, but when you're willing to sacrifice time for another, or you're willing to, to expend the emotional energy of bearing the burden of another person, or you observe, absorb, absorb the offense in forgiving another person as Jesus absorbed our offenses when he died. And all of that requires suffering. But when we do that, for Christ's sake, then God's grace moves. So we have prayer, communication, suffering of love, and the last one here isn't to be missed, especially in our current culture, and that is interdependence, or it's another way of saying community. You can't get away from the fact that it's as we connect to one another in gracious, patient, loving, forgiving, encouraging ways that's not doesn't give up on each other amidst our flaws and our quirks and our, our failures, um, that we actually grow as a result of being connected to each other. That seems to be the explicit uh, intent of this verse, chapter 4, verse 16, when it says, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, that it builds itself up in love. Is that part working properly, connected together? You know, it's, you can't build a temple with one stone. It takes many stones coming together, and that's the image that's used over and over again. We are the temple of the Lord, and it's only as we're connected that we become the temple. And change takes place. And that goes contrary to the kind of anti-communal spirit that says that I can exercise and grow in my Christianity outside of fellowship. That not only mistakes the whole purpose of God to unite all things together in relationship, but seems to me to be fundamentally conceited and arrogant to think you can do it by yourself. I can I can say in all honesty that, that where I, I am at today is a product of a lot of different people speaking into my life and impacting me in different ways, sometimes for good, sometimes not for good. Sometimes Christians have harmed me, and it's given me an opportunity to learn patience and humility, or it has, it has softened my pride. Sometimes it's a word spoken that encourages me at just the right moment. I'm here today because of a whole bunch of ligaments and joints coming together and impacting my life in God's providential way. And this, I'd be willing to say, everybody here, that would be your story. The reason you're here is because of people. God working through people in both positive and negative ways to bring you to where you're at today. 
That's one of the things that he uses. Now, these are what you might call the means of God bringing about this unity of perfected and overflowing love to one another that reflects God himself. Now we come to the question. Okay, if that's the goal, and these are the central means by which he accomplishes that goal, how then do we pray and communicate and suffer and hang with it in community with each other? How do we make an effort and be diligent without exercising the wrong kind of effort? That's the question. How do we do this without being foolish, as Paul says, and depending upon the flesh? Where does my will begin and grace begin? Now, let me, uh, let me answer that simply first, and then let me expand on it, because a simple answer is going to catch you like, well, no kidding. The only effort that honors the Lord, the only effort that matters to the Lord, the only effort that is wise and honoring to God's grace is effort and work and energy expended out of our faith. Let me put that in reverse. Any kind of effort, trying, praying, Bible reading, evangelism, congregating, overcoming sin, outside of this thing we call trust, is fundamentally dishonoring to the Lord and wrong. It's faith that matters. Now, as I said, I'll break that out in a moment, but... I find it interesting that when we conceive of faith, we think of faith as the easy part and the doing is the hard part. And I think it's reverse. I think the really hard part is the believing part. And when there's true belief, well, then the effort and the, and the, the working it out is, is actually the easy part. Uh, I was reading the, the commentary uh, by Martin Luther um, the German reformer of the 16th century on Galatians. And uh, if anybody got this, he did. And it's interesting, he is one of the most prolific writers in the Christian church. You know, he translated the entire Bible into German and then has commentaries and writings and he had preached and talked. And, I mean, talk about productivity. He did. He worked. He made an effort. But it didn't come from anything else but his faith. And, and he, wrote, he wrote this. I, I just had to write this down. He says, Our opponents regard faith as an easy thing. But I know from personal experience how hard it is to believe that the Holy Ghost is received by faith as quickly said. Oh, he's received by faith as if that's it. But not so quickly done. That perhaps... If there's a lack of diligence and lack of discipline, a lack of effort on the part of God's people, it's not for the lack of trying, but for the lack of believing. That the most important prayer that a Christian can pray daily is not help me do, but help me believe. Because that belief unleashes effort. 
but belief that's centered in who God is and what he has done for us and offered us in Christ. Now, let me expand that in two directions, past and forward. What God's grace has done for us already and what God's grace in promises has uh, declared would be forward for us in the future. The first order and most important part of our faith is to rest in the fact that God has already completed everything. That is uh, Ephesians 2.8. You know, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Is the first order of faith is to become convinced that God has accomplished and done everything necessary to be fully and completely accepted by him. That when Jesus says it is finished on the cross, he finished everything. Didn't leave anything undone. No, not untied. To know that forgiveness was completely offered and won. Until we're confident of that, that we are complete and it's sufficient and I can't add anything to what Jesus has has done at all. And to rest in that finished, completed work so that you actually know I stand as as a child and we stand as children of God fully and completely loved and accepted on the basis of Christ and Christ alone, not anything that I've done. Until we rest in that truth, we will always be striving to be accepted. So that we'll try it in our praying, we'll pray to be accepted and we'll read the Bible to be accepted because why? We haven't rested in the fundamental truth of the gospel. It's already been done. I can't tell you how important that is the foundational truth of the Christian life. God already did it for you. He says, I've accomplished, I've done everything you need to do for you to be in my household, to be part of my family. You, you, you not only... Can't you? But I won't allow you to add anything to it. And when you discover that truth, well, that I stand, and that's why we speak to each other in truth, reminding each other of the grace that has already been won at the cross, right? Well, we discover joy, and we discover, um, we discover freedom, and we discover security, and then we discover um, uh, the wonder of, of what it means to be a child. That's the, that's the foundation of, 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 of what we trust in. And that opens up a whole world of affection and, and power within the Christian life to rest there. To know that. But it's that faith in grace past, what God has already done, that is the beginning point. But it's the foundation of the next part. And that has to do with the future and desire of faith. We also find that faith is spoken of in its past relationship Let's see if it's, do I have it here? I guess I left it out. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, when he talks about that faith, now faith is, uh, is the assurance of things of hoped for. The assurance of things hoped, that's forward for, and the conviction of things not seen. Idea being forward. That there is a forward component of faith that's wrapped with desire of what God promised in terms of of his gracious provisions for the future. And not just in the final resurrection, but even in the more near future. That God promises that there is more grace to be had. Greater and deeper experiences of his love. And the assumption is, of the Christian life, 
the whole of the Bible, is the most satisfying and pleasurable thing in all of life more than anything, family, children, being a father, um, owning things, is experiencing the presence of God in his grace and love. That is the best thing in life. And when we believe that he says to us, um, I am the God who does immeasurably more than you can ask or think. That when you came to me, when you first, eyes were first open and you got a taste of my grace and you're like, wow, that was good. That's just the tip of the iceberg. There's far more to come. And that, of course, too, fits into this thing called Ephesians because what is the nature in the, in the, like the thrust of Paul's prayers? But he's praying that they may understand that there is so much more to the, to the breadth and the length and the height and the depth than we'll ever comprehend. And praying that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, some people come to Christ and they experience grace and get a little bit of a taste and they think that's it. It's a little teacup. God's saying that's just a beginning point. As your faith expands, you will come to see that there's still an ocean in front of you that will never, ever be exhausted. You will never exhaust yourself on me. And I promise you that you trust that truth and you will find yourself never dissatisfied. Now that gives, gives rise to to desire. Is there more? Oh, you know it. So, so here's, so, so I pray. This is this fo- forward dimension, knowing that God has promised more, that Paul is praying for more. There's more out there to trust that that's true and entrusting to experience it and to make every effort trusting that to experience it. So why pray? I don't pray because I need to be accepted by God. I pray because there's more of him to have. Why, why take in the scriptures and meditate upon verses? It's not to be accepted. It's because there's more of his gracious love to be savored. Why congregate with other people of like mind who love Christ? Because there's more of the sweetness of the fellowship of Christ and the voice of my brother or sister that I want and I need, and out of that, to share it with them. And that moves us towards this this unity as we pursue that by faith that there is more. And he has promised more. And our trust in that promise, that faith in that promise, is what unleashes the effort. What you find in terms of human nature is that our effort and desire are wed together. I cannot discipline myself to like the smell of an outhouse or the smell of a skunk. I cannot discipline myself to like eggplant. I've tried. does not work. I don't like it. I will never like it. But one disciplines themselves to do what they have a desire for. Effort and desire and like all come together. A man 
goes out day after day, swings his golf clubs, practicing. Why? Because he has a desire and a love for golf. That's how it works. So when there's a taste that God is good, and God tells us that, or we hear from the words of Paul, now to him who is able to do abundantly more than you can ask or think, To know that there's more, and more of what we desire, if God has awakened you, then it compels you to go for more. I need, I want more of you. I want more of the grace that you have shown to us, to me. More of your joy in my life. Or to use a a cooking analogy uh, of, of how faith and desire and effort hang together, but it begins with faith. So I have this wonderful Indian friend named Ignatius John, and I know many of you have uh, tasted of his recipes, and they are, without a question, wonderful. He told me one time, he says, in his Indian accent, you know, I'm not going to try and replicate it because I can't do it very well, but he told me, he says, you got to come try Indian crafts. That kind of sounds bad, Indian crafts. Um, Dungeness crabs that have been um, cracked and they have been immersed in these Indian spices and sauces and, and then you go and you eat the crab. Well, I had never tasted it before. But I believed what he said, that it was good. And that belief led to a taste. He had me over and I tasted it and it was better than he had said. It was wonderful. And what does that do? That creates a desire for more, and a sense of exertion. I'm willing to pull out my pocketbook and pull out some money and say, Ignatius John, we need to go to Costco, buy some more Dungeness crabs and some spices, and we need to do it again. I'll drive to your house. Why? Because I love it. I heard what he said and at some level believed it. I tasted it, and it was good. And then I wanted more. And therein lies, I believe, the key to effort is that what we're endeavoring to do is trust God at his word that there's far more to be had, more of him ending in a face-to-face encounter, and that's what we live for. And it's the one pleasure worth giving up the tinier pleasures of sin for. Now, is that easy? No. Is it fast? No. But it is our way forward to playing our part in the plan of God. It's trusting in God's past grace and what he has already done for us in Christ, but then recognizing that he offers us far more of himself by faith, and he has promised it. And in faith, wedded to desire for more, we run the race, and we share it with other people, lost and found alike. But I believe in the end, that is the answer to the question. You know, where does discipline fall in? That's a discipline that's by faith that has a taste of the goodness of God. And that taste leads to a greater appetite for more. And out of that appetite comes greater and greater expenditures of effort in writing songs and singing songs and sharing with other people and opening your home to people. That that's where it comes from. Delight yourself in the Lord and you'll find your efforts expanding. Father, I I do pray that you take this truth and I do make it a reality in our our lives. You are good and you do say, you know, taste and see that I am good. 
for those of us who have, have come to Christ and perhaps drank of your grace and understood the nature of our complete forgiveness and the finished work of Christ, um, but have stopped there and never realized that there is an infinite supply of, of, of your goodness to be experienced in life. I just pray that you break open the windows once again and remind them that they haven't even begun, hardly begun to taste what you have in store for them. And that out of this, Lord, we would find the strength and the courage to trust you, past and future, and live out our lives in, um, according to your plan and the unfolding of your gracious work. In Jesus' name, amen.